0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to Science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org/join. That's AAAS.org/join. This is the Science podcast for February tenth, twenty twenty-three. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week: measuring oxygen in the ocean using sharks. Contributing correspondent, Warren Cornwall, joins us to talk about a group of researchers putting data logging tags on sharks in order to study how climate is affecting oxygen levels in some of the ocean's darkest depths. After that, what can four billion-year-old minerals teach us about chemistry on the early Earth? Producer Megan Cantwell talks to geochemist Dustin Trail about using minerals called zircons to investigate the chemical properties Of the early hydrothermal pools where life began. Things are changing in the world's oceans. You might have heard of these things called marine heat waves or ocean acidification. They're on the rise, they're bad for ocean life. Another shift that's being seen now is ocean deoxygenation, the loss of dissolved oxygen in the water. Now we have contributing news correspondent Warren Cornwall. He wrote a feature on using sharks to track oxygen depletion in the oceans. Hi, Warren. Hi, Sarah. So why is deoxygenation bad for the ocean?
1: The simple answer is most of life needs oxygen to live, just in the same way that if people are running short of breath, they can't do the things that they normally do. The same thing is true for sea life.
0: hmm What do we know about the causes of deoxygenation? I assume that just like with all the things happening, to these complex systems. It's not going to just be one thing.
1: That's right. It depends on where you are in the ocean. Listeners might be familiar with the term dead zones, areas that are almost completely depleted of oxygen and where most marine life can't survive. And these dead zones are usually in coastal areas where there's a lot of runoff of fertilizer and other kind of nutrients into the water. And that fuels these huge algae blooms. Then the algae sinks and is consumed by microbes. And as the microbes flourish, they consume oxygen. The Gulf of Mexico is a classic example. The Baltic Sea is another place. There's a number of these places around.
0: There's also a climate change link here.
1: That is a problem that has become recognized more recently. The primary driver in that is that as the atmosphere heats up, The surface waters in the ocean in a lot of places also warm. That can drive two dynamics. One is that warmer water holds less oxygen than colder water. And so you have less oxygen transferring from the atmosphere into the water. And then also as the water on the surface layer warms up, it mixes less with the colder water below. You wind up with this stratification. These layers become... Strengthened. And so as it's stratified, you have less mixing. And so the oxygen that's in the upper layer of the water gets transported less down to the lower water, which feeds these currents that can circulate throughout an entire ocean basin.
0: You mentioned briefly that no oxygen in the water means animals or organisms that need oxygen are not going to do well. Are there other effects besides just suffocation? What else does deoxygenation do to marine organisms?
1: There's a lot of evidence that. Even if you have slightly less oxygen in the water, you can have effects on marine life. It can affect how they grow. It can affect their reproductive success. So there's evidence that sort of stress induced from decreased oxygen can affect how effectively they reproduce, their growth rates, their sexual behavior. It can also affect where they decide to live, right? So if you have mobile species like fish, they might just move to somewhere else where there's more oxygen available, but that can affect people who rely on fisheries for their livelihoods and for their food. And then there's the example that I spent time looking at more closely in the Eastern Atlantic, which is that as you have this shift in where fisheries, where fish decide to live because of low oxygen zones, you can wind up with this sort of ripple effect through an ecosystem that affects The things that eat the fish, and then it can affect the fishing industries and whether they're at risk of overfishing the fish that they rely on. And so you have this sort of cascade of effects potentially.
0: This is where the sharks come in. Can you talk a little bit about the trip that you took?
1: There's this group of researchers, most of them are from the United Kingdom or from Portugal, and they've spent about the last decade and a half putting tags on blue sharks and mako sharks. So these are pretty large sharks that spend a lot of time in the open ocean and travel enormous distances, thousands of kilometers. And they have been tagging these sharks in the eastern Atlantic, off the western coasts of Europe and Africa. Then they've been tracking these fish to see where they go and what they do.
0: And sharks are somehow affected by the lack of oxygen in the ocean?
1: Sharks in some ways might even be more sensitive. I mean, there are some marine species that can tolerate relatively hypoxic conditions, but sharks are sort of the Olympic athletes, the Olympic sprinters of the ocean world. They are large, they can travel at tremendous speeds of 30 kilometers an hour, and they move huge distances. And so potentially their sensitivity to low oxygen could be higher.
0: Is that what they saw when they did this tagging project that you're talking about?
1: I mean, that was, the, that was what first made them curious was when they tagged these sharks, they weren't initially studying low oxygen. They were curious to see where the sharks went. And what they found was that an unusual number of the sharks wound up heading down towards this large zone of low oxygen water off the west coast of northern Africa. Sharks seem to prefer this area with low oxygen, which seems a little bit contradictory, right? Because these are fish that probably would prefer to be in oxygen-rich waters. And so that's what sort of set them on this course to try to figure out what was going on and what the implications were.
0: Mm -hmm. So what was it like being out there looking for sharks in the ocean off the coast of Northern Africa?
1: So we were in the Canary Islands, which is a small set of volcanic outcrops, off the coast of Morocco, but controlled by Spain. So they're Spanish territory. They've tagged fish in the Azores, which is to the north. They've done some tagging of sharks at Cape Verde, which is to the south, which is actually in the low oxygen zone. And then this was their first trip to the Canary Islands. And what they were hoping to do was to tag sharks that were close to the low oxygen zone, but not in it yet. So this was their first time for the Canary Islands. And so you were wondering what it was like. Frankly, it was mostly uh, boring. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that at least at that moment, there were not very many sharks in that water. Or if there were, they were not hungry for the anchovies that they were offering them. So I was there on the boat, sort of spending all day rocking back and forth in this little fishing boat. They were lovely company. It stank of running fish. And there, there wasn't much to hold on to or sit on. You just spend a lot of time waiting and hoping that the sharks beneath the water are doing something more exciting than what you're doing on the boat.
0: (laughs) That's science for you. It's a lot of waiting around to get the thing that you need. That's right. Did they catch any sharks when you were there?
1: They caught one shark while I was there in five days, which (laughs) according to the lead scientist, David Sims, who's been catching and tagging sharks for decades, was basically the worst ratio he's ever seen
0: so what kind of tags are they giving these sharks now that they know that the oxygen levels might be important to where they're going or where they're hunting
1: there are relatively simple tags that are basically just tracking their movements and it collects a little bit of information about the water that they're in but david in collaboration with other scientists has been working to develop these more advanced trackers that can collect all kinds of useful information including the oxygen levels in the water that the fish is swimming through, really detailed information about the shark's movements. So it can count the number of tailbeats as the shark is swimming through the water. And so that can tell you if it suddenly accelerates, that can tell you that it's probably chasing something. So they've tracked a mako shark that was producing 20 tail beats per second, which is just remarkably fast. <laughs> that shark was on the move. And they have a device that's similar that has a little tiny propeller on it that can measure how fast the shark is moving and a little video camera that can give you a shark's eye view of what it's eating. And it has a little thermometer that they actually insert into the muscle on the back of the shark that can give you some information about shark metabolism and how it's responding to different levels of exertion and also different levels of oxygen.
0: That's quite the instrumented animal all of a sudden. A lot of useful data in one place.
1: The more advanced sensors that I was talking about, I mean, they're these large neon orange bulbs. They're about the size of a big light bulb. And to mount them on the shark, they have to drill two holes through the shark's dorsal fin and then basically screw it on. Oh, wow. It's quite an operation to get it on the shark. And then the bigger sensors only stay on the shark for two days. And then there's this timer for it to release partly because they're concerned that if it stayed on the shark much longer, it would interfere with its ability to swim naturally.
0: So we talked a little bit about how this might change where the fish that sharks eat are living. Is that something they've seen already, you know, as they're collecting this data? This sort of
1: gets to this answer to this mystery of why do these sharks want to go to these low oxygen zones? It appears that's what's happening is that you have this Large pocket of sort of mid depth low oxygen water off the northwest coast of Africa. And by mid depth, I mean the low oxygen water reaches up to about 200 meters, maybe 150 meters below the surface. And so then above that is higher oxygen water. And that is the zone where these sharks are spending their time, most of their time in terms of the depth. So what they suspect is happening is that this big pocket of low oxygen water is acting like a fence that's corralling the fish that the sharks like to eat into sort of a smaller zone right so for the sharks it means easier fishing yeah right you've got these sort of captive prey so to speak so that's a richer place to eat that's what they think is happening and one of the things that they noted is that when the sharks get into this low oxygen zone they dive much less So mako sharks basically quit diving into the depths where the oxygen is low, and then blue sharks dive much shallower.
0: So they're saving a little energy by being able to just eat out of a little barrel instead of going deep into the water to find stuff to eat?
1: That's right. Yeah, it's the old uh, expression like shooting fish in a barrel.
0: This sounds like good news for sharks, but I'm assuming that there are some unforeseen consequences that I've missed.
1: One thing that's important to understand is what the implications are of this change in the shark behavior. There's this concern that as sharks swim closer to the surface in these low oxygen areas, that in the same way that it makes the fish that they feed on more vulnerable to getting eaten by sharks, it's also making the sharks more vulnerable to getting caught and eaten by humans. They tracked where the commercial fishing boats go in these areas and how successful they are at catching sharks because there is a shark fishery for blue sharks, basically the boats are a lot more effective at catching sharks in these low oxygen zones. And so the concern is that it's going to put already at risk sharks at even greater risk of being overfished.
0: Should we talk about what can be done? Is it just the answer just don't change the climate? The big
1: answer, as with many stories about the effects of climate change, is that humans need to take action to reduce greenhouse gas pollution. That being said, one of the things that that David Sims and others are talking about is incorporating information about fish behavior and conditions like low oxygen zones into fisheries management. So if you're going to control where people can fish and how many fish they can catch, You want to have as complete a picture as you can of what the condition of those fish populations are, where they're located.
0: Yeah. I really was surprised by the way you phrased it in your story. There's less place for fish to be. As we take oxygen out of the oceans, there's just less habitat. It's a big decrease. They're going to be concentrated. So we have to pay attention to where fish are actually going to be living, right? Right. Yeah. Could you imagine if humans were deoxygenating the atmosphere?
1: Yeah. (laughs) There would be be quite an uproar. It's interesting to think about. There was a paper that came out a couple of years ago that got a lot of attention among oceanographers that the global oceans on the whole have lost 2% of their oxygen since 1960. And people might go, well, 2%, that's not much. But there's a few things you have to keep in mind with that number. One is for fish that are eking out a living in these sort of oxygen marginal zones, two percent matters. Right. The other thing is that that does not mean that every place in the ocean just lost two percent. You have pockets like these low oxygen zones that have lost considerably more in some cases. That low oxygen zone off the coast of Africa has doubled in depth roughly during that time period. Finally, the other thing to think about is that I spoke with this prominent oceanographer who models oxygen in the ocean, and he said that he was shocked by that number when it came out. His back of the envelope calculations are that if that rate continues by 2100, we could be witnessing a 20% decline in oxygen in the oceans. Wow. And it doesn't take a math genius to know that 20% decline in oxygen is huge.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Warren.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Sarah.
0: Warren Cornwall is a contributing correspondent who covers a wide range of issues, including energy, the environment, and science policy. He writes for us from Washington state. You can read the feature we discussed and see some amazing photographs, including a top one by Warren <laughs> at science.org podcast. Stay tuned for producer Megan Cantwell's conversation with Dustin Trail about zircon chemistry and the early Earth. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today.
2: When I hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon in 2016, I was so excited to touch the Vishnu basement rocks, which are over 1.6 billion years old. There's a number of ways that geologists are able to get a handle of the age on these very, very old rocks. One common way is analyzing how elements decay within a mineral called zircon. This Week in Science, Dustin Trail and Justin McComb use zircons to answer questions beyond just the age of rock, but instead to characterize Earth's earliest fluids. Thank you so much for joining me, Dustin.
3: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: Of course. So the zircons that you analyzed are even older than a billion years old. They really go back to the beginning of Earth's history. Could you talk about the location that you sampled these zircons from?
3: These really, really old zircons from the Jack Hills in Western Australia. They were more of a curiosity when they were first discovered. What became really quite remarkable about these zircons is the fact that they had ages that extended back to almost 4.4 billion years ago. So that's really just about 100 million years after our planet formed. When something has been around for 4 billion years on a dynamically active planet, for instance, some of the oldest rocks we know that there has been chemical exchange between the time of formation of that rock and its subsequent metamorphic history. Zircon's amazing in that the mobility of most elements and isotopes in its crystal structure is virtually zero. And so we know that it's locked in this chemistry.
2: This isn't the first time that these zircons from Jacks Hill, Australia have been analyzed before, right? There have been other studies to kind of learn about the geochemistry of the Earth from them. What did previous studies of these zircons reveal about that?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. So there have been several studies prior to this. To the extent that this locality is really quite famous, it's allowed us to reconstruct what our planet was like during its formative stages. We've learned that there could have been large volumes of liquid water interacting with rock to the extent that we may have had oceans as far back as 4.3 to 4.4 billion years ago. We've learned that the volcanic emanations that were coming out of our planet at that time were dominated by CO2 and nitrogen. This would have been an important component that would have influenced the composition of our earliest atmosphere. We've also learned, surprisingly, that there were rocks that were similar to what we see on the modern Earth. So there's some evidence that there is a pattern of continuity between the modern Earth and the ancient Earth.
2: One of the things in your study that you're focusing on a bit is what the kind of redox state of the Earth was At that period of time, could you explain exactly what that is and why it's important to understand for whether life formed, how life formed?
3: A useful modern day analogy or example is that the arsenic or the chromium that can contaminate groundwater, the ability for it to become mobile and become solubilized in groundwater and subsequently have deleterious effects on human health is due to the redox state of that groundwater. So what we wanted to do is to understand the redox state of high temperature fluids, and then use that information to calculate using thermodynamic models, how that would affect the mobility of metals that may have been important for early prebiotic activity on our planet.
2: To understand that, you've First, had to make sure that you were analyzing the right kinds of zircons there are some that form when the actual rock itself crystallizes versus when it's actually recrystallizing when it reaches that hot fluid. So how were you able to determine the difference in origin between these two kind of zircons and make sure that you're doing the analysis on the ones that are forming in these fluids?
3: The zircons that have been previously targeted are really focused on the igneous history. So the molten magma history of the early Earth. What we wanted to do was instead focus, as you mentioned, on this still high temperature, but lower temperature systems in which fluids are interacting with and solubilizing rock. And so one of the key ways that we did that is with a mineral thermometer. So we're able to measure the concentration of a trace impurity titanium that's found in the zircon structure. And there's a very, very good relationship between the titanium content found in the zircon structure and its crystallization temperature. So that was our first line of evidence. And then there were other supporting lines of evidence that allowed us to conclude that, in fact, the zircons that we were looking at were not formed in an igneous environment
2: and could you talk a little bit about the system and where is this water kind of coming from? When I first saw hydrothermal vent, I was thinking, "Oh, this is the ocean," but that's not exactly the water that you're actually analyzing, right? That was hot and heated up and recrystallized these zircons.
3: We are really talking about here in this study is a subaerial hydrothermal system. Two good modern day examples of that are Yellowstone, for instance, or Iceland is another great example through experiments, we were able to detect and determine the chlorine content. So one of the key ions, for example, in seawater or in other fluids. And the chlorine content is actually consistent, again, with uh, some sort of freshwater source. You can think of water percolating through a uh, volcanic rock, which is porous, down to a heat source, it is subsequently heated up by a magma chamber, and hot fluids are buoyant. They're less dense than the surrounding rock, and so they have a tendency to rise back to the surface, feeding these hydrothermal pools.
2: Once you had the right zircons that you wanted to analyze, you were, determined, you were able to determine so many different things about what the fluids were probably like, and the first of which is how oxidized the fluid was. What exactly did you find there?
3: We worked on developing a calibration in the lab that used the redox state of cerium within the zircon structure. So it's basically like a rust meter. More cerium in the zircon crystal implies that the conditions under which it formed were more oxidizing. These zircons being 4 billion years old, we can't very well view the internal workings of fluid interacting with rock or a magma chamber. And so what we do is we simulate this in a laboratory setting. So this effectively allows us to transport ourselves into the earth. In our specific case, we were very interested in controlling the oxidation state of the fluid. So we do an experiment, change temperature, keep the oxidation state the same, change temperature, keep the oxidation state the same, then change oxidation state keep temperature the same, change oxidation state, keep temperature the same, and conduct multiple experiments. And then we used all of that information to develop a calibration that we could subsequently apply to the chemistry of old zircons. Connecting a thread back from earlier, the titanium content in these old zircons provides us with temperature. So then with that variable constrained, we can then calculate the oxidation state of the fluid that that ancient zircon was interacting with. Once we applied that calibration to these zircons that were the focus of the study, these natural zircons, we found that the fluids were relatively oxidizing when compared to, well, certainly our expectations. We expected something perhaps more similar to the oxidation state of the the mantle at that time.
2: So what does that mean that it was kind of different from what you expected to find?
3: In principle, what it means is that we have this kind of anomalous, I don't know if anomalous is the right way, but an unexpected result. That's actually really important because if we want to construct accurate models for how our planet operated at that time, we need to know what the parameter space looks like. We need to know that unexpected result. And so this constraint was a key input into some of the the geochemical modeling that we subsequently did. After we had this information that you mentioned, the chlorine content, uh, the temperature, uh, the oxidation state, we plugged all of that information into a geochemical model that relies on thermodynamics that allowed us to then subsequently model the evolution of that fluid from the interior of the planet to the surface.
2: And when you did this model, what did you find about the metals and different things that were likely to be abundant in this area 4 billion years ago? What we found is there were certain metals
3: that were not particularly abundant, copper being among them. We also found there were some metals, for instance, manganese, that was actually quite abundant. But interestingly enough, when you look through the literature, manganese doesn't feature prominently into many origin of life models. Copper gets a lot of press. Zinc and iron both do as well. Both zinc and iron, by the way, were found to be relatively abundant when compared to copper. So this is, at least from from our perspective, it's useful because you can start to perhaps converge upon what conditions may have been present on our planet at that time and use that information as the inputs into models and into prebiotic chemistry experiments that will hopefully move you to the next level. So it will help, hopefully help you design and develop experiments that are realistic in the context of planetary conditions.
2: Based on what you found through your study, you were su- surprised by the lack of availability of some metallic elements, others kind of tracked for what people thought, you know, might have been conducive to getting the life going. I guess overall, like, what would you say? Would, was it favorable to forming life, you would say, the conditions that you found? Yeah,
3: I I think so. I, I, I'm i always an optimist. We know that life started on Earth. I I think there are, you know, few that would argue against that. This information may also help us search for life on other planets, too. If we're starting to really reconstruct what our planet was like around the time when life emerged, right now, N equals one. We don't know of life on any other planet, but if we can begin to reconstruct what our planet was like, and I think the study is a step in that direction, I'm optimistic that that information will actually help us search for life outside of our planet, perhaps in our solar system or even in solar systems beyond ours.
2: Is there anything more in future studies that you want to do with the zircons from these samples in Jacks Hill, Australia?
3: There's, I think, decades and lifetimes (laughs) of work left. We're approaching 20 localities on Earth in which there are zircons older than 4 billion years old. In addition to the Jack Hills, I think over the next decade, we're going to discover more pieces of rock from the formative stages of our planet's history. It's entirely possible that there are ancient pieces of terrestrial crust that have been preserved in the vacuum of the moon for billions of years. So we may actually have pristine pieces of the Earth that we will one day find.
2: That's super exciting. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me, Dustin. I really appreciate it.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure.
2: Dustin Trail is an associate professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Rochester. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org podcasts.
0: And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website, science.org podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Megan Cantwell, and produced by Kevin McLean. We also had production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.